You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today's episode is on the topic of lichen sclerosis and my guest is familiar to Good GP listeners. It's Dr. Christina Delange. Christina, welcome. Thanks so much, Tim. We've had everything go wrong today in this recording. I've got dogs barking. I've got kids' homework that didn't go right. We've had recording trouble, so it's good to finally be recording this episode. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) So today's episode is on female lichen sclerosis. We'll make it gender-specific and uh, just ask you the simple question because it's a condition that some of us would not know a lot about. Um, So what is lichen sclerosis? Tell us a bit more about it. Lichen sclerosis is a chronic skin disorder which generally has a predilection for the genital skin. So generally we would say like a figure of eight pattern in a female, so around the vulva, down the perineum and then around the anus as well. Um, There will be a small number of patients that might have extra genital manifestations. Um, So most commonly are the neck, the bottom, thighs, shoulders and, you know, hands or wrists. For the majority of women, it will be exclusively in the vulval area itself. In terms of prevalence, it probably affects, you know, around one in 500 women. Sort of the statistics or research will sort of quote anywhere from about one in 300 to one in 1,000. And you mentioned today that we are talking about female specific, but it certainly is much higher prevalence in women. So about a 10 is to one ratio in terms of female to male. We do see it occur in any age group, but certainly the majority of cases tend to be in the perimenopausal or postmenopausal woman with an average age of onset around 50, 55 or so, but certainly um, not to be discounted in younger women as well. We do see it present earlier in life and there will be a small percentage that actually present in childhood and prepubertal girls as well. So it is something to be considered throughout the lifespan. So how does lichen sclerosis present when it does present, Christina? Yeah, so the most common way that lichen sclerosis presents, or I guess the hallmark symptom for lichen sclerosis is the presence of itch. And often it will be quite severe. So a lot of women will say that it interferes with their sleep. Um, It might interfere with their life, their daily activities. And the severe itching will often lead to complications like fissuring, excoriation of the skin, erosions, uh, and that can then cause pain and discomfort. Women will report that they get stinging when they pass urine or rubbing on their clothing, their underwear, for example. And certainly dyspyronia is quite common as well. So women will find sexual intercourse extremely uncomfortable and painful and the fragility of the skin because it gets so thin will often cause fissuring if they do attempt to have sexual intercourse. So that's, I guess, the most common classic presentation. And many women will fall into that classic presentation. There will be a small percentage of women that are asymptomatic and it might just be picked up, you know, during their cervical screening or an examination for another cause. Um, So it's certainly something to be mindful of and always doing a very thorough examination whenever you're doing a genital examination, cervical screening, it's a really good opportunity to examine the vulval skin as well as the vaginal mucosa and and obviously the cervix at the same time. For the last bit over a year worked uh, as a 
GP with special interest. So we call them gypsies where I am and in the Volvo clinic. So I've got a sort of subspecialized gynecology clinic. And this would be, I'd say, the most common presentation that I see in the Volvo clinic. And certainly for a lot of women, it will go undiagnosed or sometimes misdiagnosed at first because that symptom of itch will often cross over to other things and women will often sort of self-medicate with thrush treatments or potentially be recommended thrush treatments or other sort of treatments before someone actually does an examination and sees the features and actually is able to make the diagnosis. So it is something to really consider in women that present with that recurrent thrush, always feel itchy, starting to become um, more and more distressing for them. Yeah, look, it's, it sounds to me like it's a diagnosis that not just patients, but GPs can often perhaps not get right first time. So you can sort of be on a journey to reaching the diagnosis. So in that aspect, you've mentioned some of them, but what are the other conditions that you want to consider in your differentials in someone with this presentation? Yeah, so certainly anything that itches in the vulval area, you want to be considering lichen sclerosis. So, you know, typical things around, you know, I mentioned thrush, vulvovaginal candidiasis, certainly HSV um, and other STIs. Certainly we want to be considering the possibility of lichen sclerosis in any of those other conditions that can present with itching as well. Certainly atopic dermatitis and lichen simplex uh, can also present in a similar fashion and so we want to be considerate of those, as can cutaneous fungal infections as well. So not just vaginal candida but the vulval skin being affected by a fungal infection can sometimes present with itch and some um, changes with excoriation and what have you that can become very similar in appearance sometimes to lichen sclerosis. I guess the other things to have in your differential diagnosis in terms of the examination findings would be things like psoriasis, which can also present, you know, with a white plaque in the area, extra mammary Paget's disease, uh, seborrheic dermatitis sometimes can look similar. Uh, and obviously the big complicating feature, which is VIN or, you know, a malignancy in the area, which we want to be hypervigilant for checking and biopsying, referring as needed. What would be the specific examination findings you'd expect to see with lichen sclerosis that, that make it perhaps different to other differentials, Christina? Yeah, so the most common finding you'll see is sort of a white black. I mentioned earlier that it tends to uh, affect that figure of eight pattern and certainly it doesn't have to affect the entire figure of eight, but you should be looking for it anywhere around. So when you're doing the um, you know, genital examination, really paying close attention, just that general examination when you first start looking, but then opening up the labia to check down the inner lips of the, or sort of the inner aspect of the labia majora, uh, the labia minora itself and the introitus down the perineum and around the anus because it can affect any of those areas. And certainly we'll, we'll generally have that sort of white sclerotic plaque type appearance. Some women will get more of just sort of a hypopigmentation, which can sometimes make it a bit difficult, you know, have to be thinking about um, vitiligo in that situation as well. And some, for some women, it will have kind of an atrophic, wrinkled sort of appearance to the, some of the areas of skin as well. So almost like cigarette paper, that really thin, wrinkled type appearance. 
Often you'll see fissuring, erosions due to sort of scratching. Certainly if it's left untreated or sometimes some women even on presentation with, you know, sometimes they'll present with more advanced disease, they will have quite marked alterations in their vulval anatomy. So the most common things you'll see is sort of resorption of the labia minora and also a burying of the clitoral hood as well. So For some women, you'll actually have quite altered anatomy and essentially be unable to differentiate some of those typical landmarks. There'll be almost complete loss of the labia minora bilaterally and the clitoral hood. And then sort of going on from there can then end up with stenosis of the um, introitus as well. So they can end up with trouble in terms of urination and certainly with sexual intercourse as a result of that. So it is a condition that can cause quite a lot of scarring and fibrosis, and it's really important to do a thorough examination, I guess, is the key messages. Absolutely. So how would you make the diagnosis of lichen sclerosis, Christina? Yeah, so lichen sclerosis is, obviously, it does have these typical clinical appearances, but I did mention that there are a number of other conditions that can overlap in terms of symptoms and appearance. The diagnosis is a lifelong condition. It's not curable. So it is for a lot of women. Some women will go into sort of a remission phase, but for a lot of women, this is lifelong and will require lifelong treatment. So I do really encourage GPs to consider biopsying before making that end diagnosis. And I think it's something that a lot of GPs are a little bit nervous, even though we biopsy other areas of the skin readily without sort of giving it a second thought. I think because it is the genital skin, you know, I think there's just that little bit of nervousness around taking a biopsy but really it's no different so in the vulval clinic I would regularly do biopsies of the vulval skin and essentially you're just looking for an area that does have some of those hallmark signs with the white plaque and I just I actually use lignocaine with adrenaline it is an area that is notorious for bleeding so using the adrenaline is important and giving it a good sort of five to ten minutes to let that adrenaline work before you take the biopsy I use a four millimeter punch biopsy and I do close it with a, a dissolvable suture not everybody does some people will just use some silver nitrate just remembering that Um, this is quite close to where urine might pass out, which obviously can be very uncomfortable if you leave sort of an open wound there. So I tend to use a vicral rapide um, just so it has sort of a rapid dissolving mechanism. But certainly you could also use a non-dissolvable suture and just get them back in five days or a week to remove it. Being such soft mucosa, do you find that the uh, as you biopsy it that the tissue holds together firmly or does it sort of fall apart a little No, it tends to hold together fine. Yeah, no no problems. Okay. That is something that I would encourage GPs to to consider doing because working in the vulval clinic, you'll often see women, you know, I work in the public system. There's a lot of delays in terms of of women getting in. If If they've got private health insurance and they might be able to get in to see a gynecologist quicker and you don't feel comfortable with the biopsying, but certainly publicly, they can have a significant weight. And I think it can actually make a huge difference to be able to get that biopsy and get the diagnosis right. And sometimes you will see women that sort of are started on treatment empirically, which is good. And it often, <laughs> the thing is, it often works well. And then 
sometimes they do come into clinic and it's hard then to confirm that diagnosis because when you examine them, actually, it might look completely back to normal. Mm. Um, and so sometimes you will suspect that the, that the diagnosis is probably right, but then there's always that uh, you know risk of overlap with some of these other conditions. And then, as I said, just not wanting to commit women to sort of a life time diagnosis unnecessarily. Let's talk about treatment, Christina. What approach do you take to treatment and what are the options for, for treatment of lichen sclerosis? Yeah, so I guess I'll talk through how um, how I explain treatment to patients. So first of all, obviously, you want to give them some education around lichen sclerosis. I'll often give them a handout, direct them to some reputable websites, Dermnet, Jean Hales, and those kinds of things, Royal Women's Hospital, that have some good sort of handouts and patient information. I generally talk to women about goals of treatment, and I find this useful. For women, the most concerning thing to them is the symptoms, the itch. You know, as I said, it's it impacts on their sleep it impacts on their life they're very uncomfortable and that's the first and foremost I guess in their mind is they want to get relief from their symptoms so I always say treatment goal number one is symptom relief and really we should be able to get to them to a point where they have no symptoms so they should be completely itch free the second goal of treatment is the examination findings, and that's really the, that white plaque. We want to be able to get rid of that completely in terms of measuring success of treatment. And then the third goal is reducing the risk of complications. So I mentioned the anatomical changes, risk of scarring, risk of stenosis. So we want to try and obviously minimise that risk. But the other risk as well is a small risk of uh, VIN or further to that malignancy developing, and that's about 3 to 4% of women. And probably the better treated and controlled it is, that is becomes protective and lessens that risk. So really, I talk about those three goals of treatment. One is symptoms, one is examination findings, and one is reducing the complications. And then I talk to women about the fact that this is a lifelong condition. We don't have a cure for it, but it is something we can manage really well. And I talk about sort of reliever therapy and preventer therapy. And I sometimes even use the analogy of asthma because I find a lot of patients can relate to it. Even if they don't have asthma, they have a family member or a friend, they kind of understand that concept that, you know, we don't cure asthma, but we can use relievers and preventers to help to manage it. And so that I use the same similar sort of analogy analogy with lichen sclerosis. The reliever and, and preventer therapy are the same. We're going to use topical steroid um, and generally a potent form, at least initially to begin with. But I guess where the reliever and preventer differs is in terms of the frequency of the use. So for most women, I would generally start them on diprazone or the other name for that is Eliofrat, and generally an ointment base. And I would generally say to use it twice a day for one to two weeks, just to really get the symptoms under control. Once those symptoms are under control, so after a week or two, they can then down titrate to once a day. And I generally would say use it once a day for six weeks. And then at that point, I'd get them back in to clinic. And hopefully at that point, they are symptom-free um, and the examination findings have, you know, significantly improved um, slash resolved. And then at that point, we can start down titrating them towards a maintenance 
uh, regime. So for, from there, I might say, right, I want you to do every second day for sort of another four to six weeks. And then from there, it's down titrate to around twice a week. So you're really sort of starting with a fairly potent strength steroid and using it very frequently to really get it under control and then slowly bringing it back to that maintenance phase. And most women can get away with using it once or twice a week as that sort of prevention type regime. I'll always warn them that if things start to flare up, either that they get symptoms or they notice skin changes, and I'll always use a mirror, get them to have a look, educate them around what those changes are, then they need to go back to the start and use it regularly for a couple of weeks again before down titrating it. There will be some women that don't respond adequately to that strength of steroids. So for them, you would look at increasing the potency up to something like uh, diprazone OV or even up to clobetazole propionate, which is a compounded medication, 0.05% strength, and that's sort of your super potent steroid. There will also be a proportion of women that will get really well controlled and you can actually start doing the opposite and down titrating them down to a lower strength. So you might go down to something like Advantin fatty ointment and really aiming to be able to use the lower strength that still gives them really good control so that they essentially, even at just once or twice a week, they're getting no symptoms, examination findings are normal. And then obviously that's helping to reduce any of the complications. I guess one last thing I would say in terms of management and just something that I talk to all women about religiously with any sort of vulval condition is general care of the vulval area. So a lot of women will be uh, unaware that they're using irritants to the area. So common things are soaps in the shower, bubble bath or whatever it might be, sort of your run-of-the-mill supermarket brand soaps and body washes, try and get them to stop that and switch over to something that's non-soap based or just water really is fine in that area. Getting them to use cotton underwear, avoiding tights, you know, stockings, making sure that any materials are quite breathable. Pads and panty liners are often a real irritant to the vulval skin as well. So trying to encourage women to um, not use pads as much as possible, maybe switching to menstrual underwear can sometimes be helpful um, if that's an issue, or else getting them help for their urinary incontinence because a lot of women will, you know, especially in perimenopausal, postmenopausal women, may have issues with urinary incontinence often that they won't raise themselves. A lot of research to show that women sort of hide that. They don't necessarily see it as something that they want to talk about. They might be embarrassed about it. So asking them about urinary incontinence and getting them help for that so that they don't need to wear the pads, getting them in with a pelvic floor physio or appropriate intervention, depending on the type of incontinence that they're experiencing. And so just those general vulval cares, I think, are really important as well in terms of that overall sort of holistic care for lichen sclerosis. Well, that's just very comprehensive, Chris, Aaron. You've taken us through a, a really thorough management plan, which I think really considers not just the condition but managing in the patient. So that's ever so useful. Thank you so much. That's all right, Tim. Hope it's helpful to the GPs out there. Yeah, look, uh, another great podcast. Thanks for listening and uh, thanks, Christina, for the episode. Mm-hmm.